Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you in any capacity at all. I'm, I'm honored to be able to continue to press into Jesus and encourage you all in the Word, even as we're here week three of our virtual church, our church simulcast. And as I'm looking at the news, as I'm sure all of you are as well, it sure seems at this point that we're going to have several more weeks of this. But I, I just wanted you to, to be reminded of this. In John chapter 20, on the first day of the week, that first Resurrection Sunday, and we're nearing that, I want you to remember what we're told. In John chapter 20, the disciples are all gathered together for fear of the Jews in a locked room. They're inside a house with a locked door, remember? You can look it up in John chapter 20. But remember, Jesus is able to get inside He's able to reach where they're at. He's able to go into their home. Think about that. And he's able to say, peace be with you. And I just want to encourage you. That's my prayer for all of you. In the different homes, on the different devices, wherever you're at, I want you to know there too is Jesus saying the same thing to you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you in the midst of this storm. Peace be with you in the midst of this uncertainty. And he's called us to continue to stay the course to keep following him, to keep walking by faith and not by sight. And so that's what we're doing, even in this virtual capacity. And I, I love what March said, and I want to just continue to, to encourage you to stay connected, church. Please make effort to stay connected. Um, I, I, I'm open to other means. I was talking with Charlie about a Slack or, or WhatsApp. Listen, I don't care what the format is. I just want to connect with you. I want us to stay connected. So if, if you've got another idea, please keep those coming. We just want to do our best to keep serving you, stay in connection and in fellowship one another, not forsaking the gathering together in this time or any time. So please take advantage of some of those things and, and we'll just let the Lord just use this time as he wants to use it. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. That is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our study through the book of Exodus and this series we're calling Awe. So pray with me as we open up our time together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, this text is, is heavy and this text is challenging. And God, this text is so important. It's so life-giving. It's, it's eternal. It's, it's touching on the most important decisions we can make in this life. And, and Father, I just pray wherever my brothers and sisters are gathered, wherever you've drawn people into this place to hear, Father, I would pray that they would be giving ears to just do that, to hear. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you're cultivating the soil of hearts, God. I pray that right now you're softening hearts, you're removing stones and and thistles and, and tilling up fallow ground, and you're just allowing the heart soil of all of us to let your word, this good seed, be planted deeply into our very being. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would be sent into every home and and bring illumination to who you are, Jesus, what you've done for us, what you offer to us, what your righteous right hand is extending in the form of salvation and forgiveness and acceptance right now. And God, I just pray, do work. Do what only you can do. Save this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get back to our Bible study again, Exodus chapter 9, we're in part 4 of this study that we're calling Awe, this series called Awe. Remember what Awe is, that reverential respect, that, that fear and wonder directed towards God, first and foremost, or above all else, God is worthy of our awe. 
And we've talked about that for the past three weeks as we've been working through the plagues and the signs and the wonders and the way God reveals himself to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and all those Hebrews in Goshen. We've talked about how how God is awe-defined, how God is able to demonstrate awe, how it ultimately declares who God is. And for most of us, we've just been left in this place where we're in awe of God. But that's exactly what he said he was going to do. Back in chapter 4, he says, By this, through these signs and wonders, you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am awe. In chapter 8, he says again, he says, What you're seeing me do, it's in order for you to know that I am the Lord. So we can be completely clear, this is God doing what he's doing to reveal himself to us. The great revelation of the I am Almighty God. So that's what we're seeing. And he's been doing this before Pharaoh, with Pharaoh in mind, with Pharaoh's wise men in mind, with the Egyptians and also the Hebrews. But we're really wanting to focus in on Pharaoh this morning. This is a pivotal chapter for Pharaoh. But I want us to remember what Pharaoh's own wise men had to say last week. Pharaoh's own wise men, his spiritual leaders, those who had the ability in part to a lesser degree counterfeit some of the miracles in the earlier plagues. Remember last week in the plague of lice, gnats? Remember, it was Pharaoh's own wise men that says, Pharaoh, what we're seeing here, this is now crossed into new uncharted territory. Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, they said. Remember, this is an act of God. This is what only God can do. They're insinuating, Pharaoh, we want you to know that it is our opinion that what is happening here is more powerful than the power we've been able to wield. It's more powerful than the power you're able to wield. And that's been foreshadowing for what we're seeing come up as the intensity of these plagues continue to build. As God continues to make it more personal and bring that point of decision to an absolute crossroads in Pharaoh's life. But while Pharaoh's wise men are starting to see, Pharaoh seems like he isn't. In fact, up until this point, through four plagues, we've read that Pharaoh has hardened his own heart six times. He's seen the awe of God, the unmistakable awe of God, and he's denied it again and again and again. Six times he's denied it, and denied it in the sense of refused to believe that it is of the Lord, refused to obey that God is wanting him to do something, refused to acknowledge that God is the great I am and he, Pharaoh, is not. That's what I'm talking about when we say awe denied in part four of this series this morning. Pharaoh's taking all of these things, all that God has revealed to him, and he's denying it. And there's going to be some real consequences that we're going to talk about later. But I just want us to see how this builds. God in his, in his love, according to his amazing grace, out of his loving kindness and long-suffering, he's been showing Pharaoh all of this. And six times thus far he's hardened his heart. We'll see the seventh time Pharaoh hardens his heart in the text before us this morning. But just think about that. He's been seeing unmistakably who God is. He has courtside seats, as March likes to say. Courtside seats to what is happening right before him. And yet he's denying it. Again and again and again. Now what is going to make the text really heavy for us this morning, really challenging for us, is after that seventh and final time, Pharaoh hardens his own heart before the Lord. We're going to see in this sequence of events, this sequence of signs and wonders being poured out on Egypt, for the very first time, we're going to read that God hardens Pharaoh's 
heart. God is going to confirm what Pharaoh has done himself seven times. And it's heavy, and we're going to make some personal application, and we're going to engage with this. But I want us just to know that's where we're going. That's awe denied, what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's pick this back up, and I just pray, tune in for this as best you can, because it's very important. Look at what is what we're told here. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent... And indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Here is plague number five. Now notice at first, notice the terms that God brings to Pharaoh. Notice that they have not changed. They will not ever change. These are non-negotiable. No compromise or counteroffer, like we talked last week, is going to be accepted. But notice them again, let my people go so that they may serve me. That's God's highest goal. That's God's non-negotiable will, right? The complete redemption of his people saved from something for something, saved from the bondage of Egypt so they can function in the very purpose in which they were created to serve and worship the Lord. So that's what he's telling Pharaoh. He's told him again and again and again. It's it's unchanged. But there is a new addition here. And I want to know, did you catch it? There's something new in this presentation before Pharaoh that God has not included in the previous messages. And what it is, is he says, the God of the Hebrews says. Normally, he'd he'd say, thus says the Lord. And listen, that's always enough for me, right? We did that prophetic language. Thus says the Lord. If the Lord says something, I'm, I'm tuning in. But here, there's starting to be a, a, a difference, a change. He says, thus says the God of the Hebrews. The, Hebrew, the God of the Hebrews says. And this is coming right off the hills of what happened in chapter or verse or plague 4 and plague 5 and 6. And that is God has started to make a difference, set a ransom, differentiate between who are his people, the Hebrew people, and who are Pharaoh's people, those who are not acknowledging the God of Israel. There's a difference. So he's starting to show there's something happening. Remember in previous, in previous studies that God has started to separate out the children of Israel from the effects of these plagues. They did not have to deal with those lies. The, the, they had to deal with the lice, but they didn't have to deal with the flies that were landing upon them in heavy oppression. And they're going to be spared, as we just read, from this very great pestilence that's going to fall upon the livestock. But that's what he's starting to say. I'm making a separation. We're going to touch on all these things before we close. 
But the first three of these plagues affected everyone in Egypt, those Hebrews in Goshen as well. But starting from the fourth plague and the fifth and the sixth, as we're going to see today, they're going to be spared. God is able to say, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to shelter them. I will be a covering and a canopy over them. They will not affect, they will not be affected by this very great pestilence and these plagues that I'm going to bring down. So he's making a difference. So that's why that's there. So the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they may see, serve me. Do this or else. Here we have another warning. If you refuse to do this, Pharaoh, if you still decide to hold them, look at what God says. Behold, my hand will come upon you. I will lay my hand upon the livestock. Now, I don't know how Pharaoh is feeling about hearing about this, right? I'd love to know, but I want you to think about this. Those wise men, those magicians, those enchanters, I would imagine they're trembling in their sandals right here and now. When they hear Moses and Aaron say, if you don't do this, the hand of the Lord is going to come upon you. They start saying, uh, uh, Pharaoh, no, 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 we don't want that. We just saw what the tiny little finger, as if it's really tiny, right? But we just saw what the finger of the Lord was able to do to us. We don't want to see the hand of the Lord come upon us. I imagine them saying, Pharaoh, we need to to agree to these terms. We need to let these people go. This is going to be bad for us if we don't yield to what God is doing. They're they're also kind of wanting to insinuate, excuse me, Mr. Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews, he's four for four right now. You, Mr. Pharaoh, you're 0 for 4. You have not even kind of fouled one off the third baseline, right? You have not even got a hit. You are being smoked through, struck out. You've had no chance in, in what God is doing here. And now he's promising to lay his hand on the livestock. I don't think this is a good idea. We need to relent. I would imagine them saying that. But Pharaoh, he is not willing to do that. Pharaoh keeps his stern face, I imagine. Pharaoh has dug his hills in, and he says, I don't care what God promises he's going to do. I am not going to let the people go. So, or else is going to happen. Now, in this plague, this very great pestilence that's going to come on the livestock, I want you to look again at verse 3, and I want you to circle the words, in the field. When this very great livestock comes upon them, verse 3 says, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field. And I want you to circle that because by the time we get to plague 7, by the time we get to the hail, we're going to see that there's other livestock that are dying as a result of this hailstorm. And you kind of want to know where those livestock come if all the livestock were killed in the fifth plague. And the answer is only the livestock in the field are those that are killed. There's other livestock in other places, in in the barns or in the storehouses or in the stables, and they're not there. They're not going to be affected by this pestilence. So just know that. Only those in the field and only those of Egypt that we're going to point out to in, in Goshen here a little bit later. But I, I want us to also understand that this is starting to get a little bit more personal for Pharaoh. This plague of the livestock, this is starting to hit closer to the things that Pharaoh holds most dear. When it comes to things worshipped in Egypt, oh, they love to worship the Nile. They love to worship frogs and the earth and the sky. But I want you to know this, livestock, oh, they really loved to worship livestock. Many of the images of those false gods or goddesses created in Egypt, they were made in some aspect or another to resemble livestock. 
they'd have bulls' heads or bulls' horns or goats' horns or, or calves' bodies or animal livestock bodies or hooves or things like that to represent in some capacity livestock. We remember from last week when Pharaoh says, go, but don't really go. Just stay here and worship to the Lord. And Moses is saying, if we start offering the blood of bulls and goats to temporarily cover the sin of the people, remember what he says? He said, the Egyptians are going to want to kill us if we do that because we will be sacrificing what they worship. It will be an abomination, right? And then remember, after God delivers his people out of Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea and they're gathered around Mount Sinai. What do they make in rebellion to the Lord, right? None other than a golden calf, right? Where would they have gotten that idea? From Egypt, seeing how they worship these livestock. So I'm just wanting you to see that they worship livestock. This is an important moment that God is not only judging and showing these gods to be useless, but it's also getting much more personal. Pharaoh would have had thousands of livestock in his own fields under his own control and they're all going to die in this fifth plague. Verse 5 says, The Lord says, Set an appointed time. Tomorrow, this is going to happen. This very severe pestilence, all the livestock in the field, they are going to get sick and they are going to die. Farmers and ranchers and livestock owners are going to watch with anxiety as they see their livestock get sick, stumble around, teeter over, and die. That's what's going to happen. And we, we, we do need to touch just ever so briefly upon the ramifications of what this is going to do in Egypt. This is going to bring the, the whole Egyptian culture and society, their whole economy is going to come to a screeching halt once again. Not only were oxen used to pull heavy loads in agricultural environments, camels and donkeys and horses are used for transportation. The cattle are a central part of their worship. So everything's going to come to a screeching halt. And this will definitely get Pharaoh's attention. But it's, it's believed here in this instance that Pharaoh was supposed to be the one who has a strong hand of protection over Egypt. But we're going to see again that God's hand is stronger. Mightier is the right hand of God Almighty than it is the right and left hand combined of any other being anywhere. And so that's what's happening here. So here's, here's the situation. Pharaoh's going to see all this and he's going to be devastated about it. And there's only going to be one explanation. This is what the hand of God looks like. This is what he told, he was told by Moses and Aaron beforehand that was going to happen. Here's the or else. And hasn't he seen again and again and again? This is the fifth plague. When God says something, it happens. When God promises, it comes to pass. It has never failed. It will never, ever fail. And so again, he's seeing it. God is not a liar, Pharaoh. God says what he says and means what he means. But remember, there was that also that other little tidbit as if God is going to say, but I really, 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 really don't want you to miss it this time, Pharaoh. And he tells him, you're going to be able to see that even though there are livestock lying dead, animal carcasses all over Egypt right now, there is not one single animal dead in Goshen. You can go check it out if you want, Pharaoh. That was the message, just tiny little tidbit. And that's exactly what Pharaoh is thinking. Really? Really not one animal? There's, there's carnage everywhere, but really not one animal is dead in Goshen? So verse 7 says he's going to send out some investigators to check out that claim. God is definitely getting his attention. Pharaoh is now following up 
to check out to see if the word of God is really true. That's what he's doing. He's, he's slightly interested here. Is God really able to protect his people? Is God really able to prevent a single animal from dying in this very great pestilence? That's what he wants to know. And so he says, I'm going to go look into it. Send some investigators to go and check it out. But what we're seeing here, what we're really seeing here about Pharaoh is he's what we call a skeptic. That's, what, that's who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh is a skeptic. He's someone who takes the position of questioning or doubting the accepted truths or circumstances that God has presented in his word. He's a skeptic. It's interesting to find out, is the claim of God true? That's what he kind of wants to know, but here's the catch. Once he finds out that it is true, he's not willing to obey it. And that's kind of a mark of a skeptic. I think it's fine to start out as a skeptic. I think it's a poor outcome to remain a skeptic. And I share that with you because I think there's probably some skeptics tuning in right now. And I I say, I'm glad you're here. We love you. But I say, will you take a look at the text? Will you see what, what Pharaoh is doing here? Will you look at how things go for Pharaoh's life? Because things don't end well for the one who remains a skeptic. If you're here and you're honestly seeking and you really want to know, that's great. This is not a blind faith. There is evidence. You can follow up on the claims that God makes and you can find that they're true. But after you find out that they're true, it's time to humble yourself and submit to the one who is greater than we are. And again, that's the very thing that Pharaoh will not do. So he asks, is this true? Have these livestock really been protected? Has not a single animal died in Goshen? And we see that the the investigators come back and they're going to say, indeed, it is true. Not one animal has died. Pharaoh's now had people around him testify, this is an act of God. This is the finger of God. And he's hardened his heart against it. Now he's had another group of people testify the word of God is true. Miraculously, he has spared every single... He he can set the boundaries of his pestilence. He can set the boundaries of the ocean like he sets a shore and a, 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 a water line to stop. And even though those waves are so powerful and they keep crashing because God says stop, they stop. That's what we're seeing about the awe of God. And Pharaoh is seeing all this awe and yet he's denying it. And it's breaking my heart because I think, Pharaoh, this, this has to be enough. How can this not be enough for you to see? You have indisputable evidence. But what does a skeptic often do? A skeptic finds another reason to question, finds something else to doubt. I want to encourage you, if you're a skeptic, I don't want to deter you at all from, from pursuing the Lord from trying to find out if the things that you're told are true. We love to say, be a Berean. Be reasonable and search the scriptures daily to make sure that what you are hearing is true. But if it's true, when you discover that God is true, now it's time to submit to that. Now it's time to say, God, you're greater. Not to be like Pharaoh and and harden his heart. I want you to think about this. Pharaoh finds out who God is again finds out that God does what he says he's going to do, is capable of doing what he says he's going to do. He has more facts than most of us have ever received, and yet he still won't put his faith in the Lord. I want you to think about this statement. In God's grace, in God's loving kindness for Pharaoh, 
God has revealed himself more to Pharaoh than any other Gentile in all of the Old Testament. Think about how heavy that claim is. More than Ruth. More than Rahab. More than Naaman. More than Nebuchadnezzar. Those Those four people had less revelation from the Lord and it was enough for them to put their faith and receive even more revelation in the Lord. Because the world wants us to to think, show me and I'll believe. That's the world says, show me and I'll believe. God says, believe me and I'll show you. Take a step of faith. Trust me. Believe what my word has to say and I will transform you and I will show you more than your eye can comprehend, more than your brain can fathom. Pharaoh has been given all of this evidence. He's seen all this awe and over and over and over. He denies it. He denies it. He denies it. And there may be some people tuning in right now and you've had the same types of experiences. God has used people in your life, people you know who've survived horrific accidents that they should have died. People who've been miraculously healed from terminal cancer, terminal disease. People who've gone through incredible tragedy and testified to you that God is able to use that for his glory and my good. I'm better off because I went through that. And you say, how can you know? Only because God is real. Only because he lives. You've heard that. You've had people just like Pharaoh say, this is the finger of God. No, he really has spared all those in Goshen. But will you hear the testimony of those people around you and say, there must be something to it. I'm going to put my faith and trust the Lord. Or are you going to be like Pharaoh who just continues to harden his heart? That's what's breaking my heart as I read through this. I want to say to all of you, I want to testify to everyone that I can that God is real. He saved me. He forgave me. He's accepted me. He dwells inside of me. He truly lives and he extends his right hand out to you and say, will you take it? I love you too. Don't think for a second that God didn't love Pharaoh. Seven times he's given Pharaoh the opportunity to change his mind, to repent and to turn from his path and say, God, I surrender. But every single time he comes to that collision point, what really really happens is Pharaoh has to say, if I admit that God is God, What does that mean about me? It means I'm just a man. I'm not a God. That's the collision point for Pharaoh. If God is God, if the Lord is God, then it means I'm not. And every single time, maybe he even thinks about that, he says, I'm just not even willing to engage that possibility. And so he hardens his heart. When we we look at this situation, that's a decision, that's a, a crossroads that we all find ourselves in. We can either humble ourselves soften our hearts, have a teachable, understanding heart before God, and we will see him. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see the Lord. Those who really want to seek and really want to find, because when they find, they really want to submit. They will see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart. But those who have a prideful, unyielding, hard heart, say, even if you show me I'm not going to believe, they won't ever see They're hardening their own heart. That's what's happening with Pharaoh. We're going to talk more about this as we close, but I just think that's what's happening with Pharaoh. And it's at the heart of the problem. At the heart of Pharaoh's problem is the problem of his heart. And it always is. That's the same problem for all of us. And we'll talk about how God remedies that before we close. But moving on to this next plague, plague number six. It says this, verse eight. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh and Moses scattered them toward heaven. And they caused boils that broke out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So here comes plague number five. After the very great pestilence affecting the livestock in the field, the sixth plague is another plague that, notice, comes without warning. There's no dialogue between Pharaoh and Aaron and Moses here before this one. The Lord simply says to Moses, you and Aaron, find a furnace, a kiln, grab a bunch of ash, and go back and stand before the sight of Pharaoh, and I want you to cast it into the air. But there's something really beautiful about this here. When he says, go find a furnace or a kiln, what he's saying is find a place where bricks are being made, heated, and forged together in Egypt. Do you remember who was tasked the responsibility of making the bricks in Egypt? Right? It was the Hebrew people. That's the heavy oppression that has been placed upon them. That's part of their tasks. They are sweating and tirelessly laboring in Egypt to make bricks. And they're going to these furnaces with these bricks. And, and the straw or the grasses or whatever they're finding during this time, they're being burnt away in this furnace as those bricks get forged. And when all that's said and done, what do the children of Israel have to show for it? All they have is a pile of ash. Right, Because the bricks are going to Egypt to build whatever they want to build, their storehouses in their two cities. But think about what that looks like. Tons of labor. It's one thing when you're laboring and kind of sweat equity and you're making brick for yourself. And when it's all done, you're like, oh, it's a lot of work. And, but, but here's what we built. That's great. They don't even get that. Literally, all they have is ash to show for all of their labor. And some of them beatings because they didn't meet the quota of the bricks per day. But just think about that ash. They could look back at that and they could say, this ash is like a curse to us because what good is ash? Why why do we want piles of ash in the furnaces that we have control over, right? The only thing ash is good for is a God who's able to turn beauty from ashes. That's the only thing they've got going for them is, is their God is able to take ash and make it beautiful and do something awesome with it. And that's what he's doing here. And he's doing it, notice, in the sight of Pharaoh. God wants to make it absolutely clear. Pharaoh, the heavy burdens that you've placed upon my people, I have not forgotten them. The afflictions that you're putting upon them, the curse that you've made them, I'm going to repay that upon you. The very ash from their labor is going to be thrown into the sky in front of you, turn to find us, and then boils on your very skin. I think that is absolutely remarkable to see what God is able to do. He's making Israel and taking what has been a curse to them and make it a blessing to perpetuate their redemption. And from Egypt's perspective, he's taking what has been a blessing to them, now a curse to show them that they are on the wrong side of this equation. They are fighting against God and that is a battle they will never win. 
So it's escalating to the point now where there's a personal bodily affliction. These boils have fallen upon them. And these boils, this is a skin infection. This is a swelling tumor-like infection, infection that is itchy, and then it would eventually burst, and then it would bleed, and then it would scab, and I hope you're not eating anything because that's gross. But then it would repeat itself again and again during this time. I was, a few years ago, I was very badly sunburned. Kids, do not do that. Don't, learn from my, learn from my advice, wear sunscreen. But I was very badly sunburned. I was foolish, no sunscreen. But my chest, my shoulders, my back, it was, it was horrible. My skin blistered and it started itching and I was questioning my sanity because it was so painful. And then it started to itch and I would itch it and then it would sting and it would hurt only to itch again. I would like roll around the ground trying to find satisfaction. I looked like a madman. It was miserable. And that's how I picture these Egyptians in this time. They're not able to stand before Moses and Aaron. And here's where this starts to take a turn to get a little heavier. Notice what is said here. It says in verse 10, they took the ash of the furnace. They stood before Pharaoh. Who's standing before Pharaoh? Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron can stand in the midst of this judgment. But verse 11 says the magicians could not stand before Moses. Why? Because they cannot stand in the day of judgment. Psalm 1 tells us that the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. That's what this is. This is a judgment that is falling now heavily upon the house of Pharaoh, all of the Egyptians, and they cannot stand under it. And the truth, the reality is, this applies to all of us. There will come a judgment when God's righteous judgment falls and the only people who will be able to stand are those who have found themselves planted upon the rock that is Jesus. Everybody else who's standing on anything else will be brought to their knees and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. But in that moment of judgment, it will be too late to repent, to be forgiven, to be brought in as the bride of Christ. This is the moment of salvation for those to accept that now. And we see it for Pharaoh. This is the moment. This is his last opportunity before God is going to harden his own heart, affirm his rejection his entire life, affirm every single time you've denied my awe, it's come at a cost. Every single time you've seen me and you've sensed my spirit drawing to you and you've seen me bring illumination and you've seen me testify of my goodness and draw you with cords of kindness and every single time you say no, that comes at a cost. And friends, every single time we do that, we get a little harder. We get a little harder and we get a little less receptive to what the spirit of God is doing in our lives. And that still small voice gets a little duller because we keep tuning it out. We keep denying what God is wanting to do. We keep denying what he's testifying us through his word. We keep denying what we've heard, what we've tasted, what we've seen. And so here's Pharaoh. Now the judgment has come and they can't stand in this place. They can't stand before the mighty hand of God just like we unless we are found in Christ. A righteousness that is given to us from him, not something we've earned. Unless we stand washed by the precious blood of Jesus, unless we stand hidden in Christ, we will not stand. Nobody can stand. We all need Jesus. That's the offer of salvation. 
But here's what's happening. Judgment is coming. And that's what's being implied for Pharaoh. This sixth plague, continuing the trend of ratcheting up the intensity with painful sores from head to toe on their bodies. This should have been a warning that their very lives are in danger. That they can't keep denying God and not expect consequences to follow their rebellion. And one of those consequences we see right here is after six plagues, after seven different opportunities for Pharaoh to change his mind, we see in verse 12 that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Lord does that. For the first time in all of these sequences, in all of these seven wonders, and again, after he's hardened his own heart seven times, God is going to confirm and say, I will give you the desire of your heart. If you really want to shake your fist at me, if you really want to try and in pride exalt yourself over me, then I will give you what you want and you're going to find out that is not the decision that you should have made and afterwards it will be too late. That's the heaviness of what is being said here. The whole thing starts to change. And again, it's breaking my heart, but I'm just seeing this is what the text says. Since he didn't heed the words of the Lord, he didn't humble himself, he digs his heels in even deeper. His heart is harder now than it even was at the beginning. And we say, how is that? How does that happen? Why does that happen? And again, don't get so hung up on the fact that that God hardened his heart. Look at that in context. We've been studying this verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Look at that in context that he hardened his own heart seven times. God is just giving him what he really wants. Seven, the number of divine perfection, completion. This is what you really want, Pharaoh. And that is scary to me because sometimes what I really want, I don't really want. And I need to let the word of God wash over me and say, I don't want that. I want the spirit of God to say, you don't really want that. And I see in the text, that's exactly what God, how many times he said, or else, Pharaoh, or else, Pharaoh, and then bringing all these witnesses around him. He's given him every opportunity to change his mind. Pharaoh has seen miracle after sign after wonder. There's been six of them so far. And then he's watched them come and he's watched them go in miraculous fashion. He's seen God protect his people through it. He's seen all of these different things. And yet he's not going to soften his own heart and believe. He's going to deny the awe of God, refusing to believe, refusing to let the people go, deciding to say in his own heart, God is not true. God is not God. I am. And he's wrong. The bottom line at the end of this whole story, he's wrong. Read ahead. He's wrong. Wouldn't you want to know if I'm anchoring my whole life on something and I'm wrong? Wouldn't you want to know that? I would want to know that. And that's why we're doing what we're doing here because we want you to know that. Don't believe it because I said it. Read your Bibles. Let the Spirit of God bring conviction to your own heart. But this is where he's at. After seven times, God just confirms the desire of his heart, gives him the desire that he really wants to remain hardened towards the Lord. So as we come back to this idea, I want us to look at this as a warning for all of us. I mentioned earlier that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The reality is we all have hard hearts, or better stated for for some of us, most of us here, we have all had hard hearts. We've all had a heart of stone. Every single one of us, that's the human condition. We've had a heart of stone. And the new covenant, 
the new relationship God has made available when we come to him through Jesus, the new covenant says, I will take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh through which I can write my word upon. That's called being born again. When you put your faith in Jesus and you who were once sin, me who was once in darkness, a slave to sin, I am made alive in Christ. I am born again. And he takes out that heart of stone and he gives me a heart of flesh where he starts writing his word upon my very heart. That is the new covenant promise Jesus makes to us. I put the verses in your study guide. Read Jeremiah 31. Read Ezekiel 36. Read Hebrews chapter 10. It's beautiful. But that's the problem. So we talk about the heart of the problem is we have a hard heart. And I can't do, I can't do heart transplant upon myself. The very best cardiological doctor can't do heart surgery on himself. We need the wonderful physician in order to do that. We need the Lord. Which means what we need to do is change our mind. Right? If I can't change my heart and you can't change your heart, then what we need, we need God to change our heart. Well, how does God change our heart? When we decide to change our mind. When we decide to repent. That's a, that's a biblical word, repentance. But it literally means to change our mind. To say, God, you are God and I am not. I surrender. Will you come and be Lord of my life and save me? Take out this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. He promises he will do that. But it starts with a change of mind. And so I want us to think about this as we, as we wind this down and try to close this out. These are the things that God has revealed to Pharaoh. These are the things that God has revealed to us. And we see Pharaoh is hardening his heart again and again and again. And friends, what we really want to know is, am I doing the same thing? Am I hardening my heart to the things of God? Am I hardening my heart to the things that God is showing me? Is there any Pharaoh in me that I need to repent and let God deliver me of? Listen, there are five things that God has shown Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardens his heart to each of them. Five things. Listen to these five things. Number one, God has shown Pharaoh the meaning of salvation. Pharaoh knew what it meant to be saved. We say, well, how does he know that? I don't see the gospel in this. Well, let's talk about what salvation means. Salvation means to be delivered from something. In its most basic form, to be saved, to experience salvation is to be delivered from something. And that has been God's single-minded purpose in every single request, every single time he approaches Pharaoh. Let my people go. I want to save them from the bondage. You are oppressing them with. Pharaoh understands what salvation is. It means deliverance. And he sees that's exactly what God wants to do. I want to save my people. And that is true for us in Christ. God offers salvation through Jesus, a deliverance. And some of us say, well, well I'm saved or, or are you saved? What does it mean? What am I saved from? Well, it's saved from several things, but let's just make it easy here. It means we're saved, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. We are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin, God deems the standard. Perfection is the requirement. To be a sinner is to be less than perfect. And if you're less than perfect, you're deserving of death. And if that sin is not covered by the righteous blood of Jesus, that death leads to an eternal separation, hell for all of eternity. So when we get saved, we are delivered from that outcome that God doesn't want for us. We talk about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus being the only name given among men to call on and be saved. We say, well, why? That's so narrow. Because Jesus is the only one who was able to bring the deliverance 
from the penalty of sin and the wages of death and the destination of hell for all of eternity because a sinner can't die for another sinner and nobody else was perfect. But Jesus, the Son of God, lived a sinless life and then he laid his life down as a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So he is our deliverer. He alone gets to have that title, but he saved us. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are delivered. But I want us to understand that is what Pharaoh has learned. God has shown Pharaoh this is deliverance. And I don't believe for a second that God wouldn't have delivered Pharaoh. If Pharaoh would have said, God, forgive me. Again, I I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar. I mentioned Naaman. I mentioned Rahab. I mentioned those are all Gentiles that weren't deserving of life any more than we are any less than Pharaoh is. God is a good and gracious God who really desires none to perish, but that all would come to repentance and experience everlasting life, heaven with him forever. I do not think Pharaoh was excluded from that possibility, but he excludes himself because after learning what salvation is, he hardens his heart against it. He resists the loving hand of God. So he learns what salvation is. Number two, Pharaoh learns what the purpose of life is. How important is that? What's the purpose of life? I want to know what's the purpose of life. It's in that request that God has, has, has unyieldingly continued to bring. Let my people go so that they may serve me. That's our purpose. We were created to worship God. We as human beings, we are an expression of God's love. He created us for loving fellowship with us so we would see who he is and return his love back to him through worship. That's the whole purpose of our existence. Not to love this world or the things in it, but to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. And then when we do that, we find out that there's no way to actually love God more than he loves us. There's no way to outgive God. The more we love him with all of our heart, soul, and strength, the more we actually get more love to then love our neighbor as ourself, to then love those around us, love one another, love our spouses, love those people that maybe are even called our enemies. God is able to give us that kind of radical love. And when we love him first, when we worship him with the purpose of our lives, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything falls into this beautiful harmonic pattern. And then everything else starts just working out. It's this beautiful thing. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's just like that. That makes sense now because I'm seeing it through the lens of my God, my Savior, my Father, who's a good, good Father. I'm seeing it. Think about the things that, that we experience when we get this first purpose right. We start to experience a joy indescribable. We start to experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. We experience a contentment without condition. A contentment that isn't reliant upon having much or not having little or whatever the case may be. A contentment without condition. We experience a hope that is uplifting, a love that is all-encompassing, a faith that endures the storms and all the uncertainties that we face because our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, loving him, and he is the author and finisher of our faith. That's our purpose. That is now more apparent than ever. When things get shaken and all that can be shaken is shaken and falls away and the one thing remains, that's the one we want to keep our eyes fixed upon. And here's Jesus On his throne, here's the wonderful God Almighty holding all things together by the power of his word, almost funneling people to himself out of his cords of kindness through his awe. Don't deny it. There's the purpose. Number three, Pharaoh's seen these first two, the meaning of salvation, the purpose of life, but he's hardening his heart towards them. But number three, 
He learns the folly of idolatry. He learns how foolish it is to worship things created by the hands of men, created by people, things of wood and stone. He has seen over and over through six plagues thus far, they cannot deliver. They cannot protect. They cannot prevent. They are not worthy of awe. They are not worthy of worship. One by one, God in his grace, out of his loving kindness, is showing him and all of us the folly of idolatry. Not to worship or show admiration to those things. They don't set us free. All they do is bring us into more bondage. When we offer our hearts in allegiance to anything other than the Lord God Almighty, all we're met with is unmet expectations, disappointment, letdown after letdown after letdown. That has been Pharaoh's experience through six plagues. Not one of his gods, goddesses, the idols that he's created has done anything for him. And now he's worse off than he was at the beginning because he's still trying to trust in things that God has said, don't trust in those things. Trust in me. Pharaoh's able to see right before his own eyes the contrast to who the Lord God is. God is able to deliver. God is a good shepherd who protects. God is able to prevent, as we've seen him spare those in Goshen. God is able to bring beauty from ashes. God is worthy of awe. Pharaoh's seeing all this, and again, he's hardening his heart towards it. Number four, Pharaoh's seen the superiority of faith. I love this one. He's seeing for himself how, how amazing faith is. In plagues 4, 5, and 6, each of those three, Pharaoh has seen that they're not affecting the Israelites in Goshen. They're not being affected like we're being affected. God's setting a ransom. God's making a difference. And he's saying, why? He could say, why? On what basis is God afflicting us and not afflicting them? On what basis? Why? You go to Hebrews chapter 15, verse 6, and you get where God is renewing his promise to Abraham that Abraham is going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. The descendants we're talking about right here in Exodus, right here in Egypt, those ones who are being protected by the Lord God. Right? He says, I'm going to give you these descendants. And what does Abraham say? It's beautiful. Abraham says, I believed God. And God says, I credited to him righteousness. We've got faith as righteousness on the basis of grace. Genesis fifteen six. Here's the father of the faithful. What's the basis? Why is God showing favor to the children of Israel here? Because he's gracious and they're receiving it by faith. What's the difference between these Egyptians and the Hebrews? Some have received grace through faith and others haven't. The whole thing is on the basis of faith. Faith is more superior. We don't want works. I don't want God to look at me and say, you've done so much, I'm going to. I don't want that because I would never be able to do enough. We're talking about almighty God, the great I am here. But if he looks at me and says, you put your faith in Jesus and I'm going to see what Jesus did and I'm going to credit his righteousness into your account through faith, I say, yes, 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 amen. That's what I want. I need your grace, God, your undeserved, unmet favor. That's what I want. That's what you want. That's the difference here. Pharaoh's learning the superiority of faith. And again, don't think for a second that Pharaoh couldn't have put his faith in the Lord right here and say, I want to be seen. God gives parameters all throughout the Old Testament for a Gentile to make their way into the the position of a relationship with God through faith. But he doesn't do it. He continues to harden his heart. 
So number five, the last thing that we see here is we see the consequence of rebellion. God says to Pharaoh, if you refuse to let the people go, if you will not heed my words, if you will not acknowledge my signs and wonders, if you will take my awe and say, denied, then you're going to find yourself where there are dire consequences for such defiance. All those who rebel against God will suffer a holy judgment. No one is going to be able to escape that. We've been able to see and point out through six plagues. There's still four more, but through six plagues, Pharaoh is without excuse. I don't think any one of us can look at this and say, hmm, I wonder if Pharaoh had a fair shake. He's without excuse, friends. He's without excuse. He knew, and he makes the decision not to believe. And I say the same is true for us. We are without excuse. There is more evidence at our disposal. There is more truth before us now. We have more opportunities in this age of grace to accept our Lord and Savior, to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior than Pharaoh did. But we're left in the same crosswords. What are we doing with that? Do we take the awe of God and say, denied and exalt our heart above the Lord? Or do we say, Father, forgive me for I am a sinner? Wash me white as snow. I need you, Jesus. You are God. You are good. I'm not. Come into my life. I invite you into my life. That's the response. A humble, contrite heart. God will not despise. That is so beautiful. That's such a promise. But I want us just to come back to this idea. I was mentioning it earlier. When we look at this, is there anything about this that is also in our hearts? Is there any Pharaoh in us, in a sense, when God shows us some things and we just have trouble believing it? If you're honest, I I think there's some of us that's true. I'm just struggling with a hard heart. I want to come back to the idea, the hard heart shouldn't be the focus. The mind, what we're doing with the decisions up here, that's the focus. The heart, I can't fix. But I can change my mind. I can say, Lord, I believe I can say, Lord, help my unbelief. I can say, Lord, your word is true. I can say, Lord, I need to be born again. I can say, Lord, I'm changing my mind. Will you change my heart? That's what God can do. There are so many examples throughout our Bibles of people who are in worse off situation than Pharaoh was. And God receives their broken and contrite heart. God takes their humility and he exalts them. But he has to exalt those who are prideful before him before they can get to that place. Maybe that's what this season has done for you. Maybe that's what God is doing for you. As some of these things are being stripped away and what maybe your identity was in is being stripped away and you're kind of bored at home wondering what is God doing? Maybe he's trying to get a hold of your heart. Maybe he's trying to say, what I really want is your salvation. What I really want is to deliver you from all these things that are holding you. What I really want you to see is one by one, I'm taking out all those other things that really have never been able to save and never been able to bring you comfort and never been able to deliver, nor will they ever, but I can. And I'm here extending my righteous right hand saying, I love you, I died for you, I rose again, I ever lived to make intercession for you. I want to save you. Don't harden your heart like Pharaoh did soften your heart come to the lord in humility just like we're we have the opportunity to do here this is what god promises we can embrace the awe of god and be mesmerized by it not deny it we can see the awe of god and say i'm so glad i'm hidden in christ because god is so awesome
And so here for you in the comfort of your home, if God has been pressing upon your heart and pulling you, today is a day of salvation. We are not promised tomorrow. We are in unusual times, but we exist. I feel I am here for such a time as this to preach this gospel to you so you can be without excuse, so you can accept it and be saved. You can hit the knees in your living room right now with no interruptions and say, Father, forgive me. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I want to be born again. I want to live with you as Lord. And he can do that. I pray that you would do that. And I pray that you'd reach out to us. I know it's hard. We don't know who's around. We don't know who's there. But God does. And he's in your home extending peace to you now. But if that's you, reach out to me. Send me an email. Send the church a text. We'd love to connect with you. And we'd love to walk this walk with you. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for us, church, as we close out our time together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, we are so amazed at who you are. And Father, it just shudders my heart to think about someone who would hear such good news and would, would hear such hope. And God would see just how, how amazing and loving and gracious and awesome you are and would just deny it. God, that breaks my heart at the thought. And so I pray against anyone listening and having those thoughts. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would woo them, that you would draw them with your cords of kindness. God, you won't make the decision for us. You've done everything but make that decision for us. And you tell us, if if you will change your mind, I can change your heart. And I just pray that someone would take you up on that. Many people would take you up on that. Surrender their lives to you now. Experience your hope. Experience your comfort. Experience your peace. Father, Be glorified through this time as you draw us to our knees, as you draw us to ourselves, and we just pray for our neighbors and those loved ones around us who don't yet know you. Let revival break out in Jesus' name. Save in Jesus' name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.